Welcome to the Bookworm Games series on Xenogears. We'll come back to what that strange name Xenogears might mean, but first, if you haven't played it yet, it's well worth it. As much as we'll be discussing, each episode might take an hour or two to play through. Though, it'll be considerably less for this first episode, and I should tell you up front, I'm liable to give spoilers. So this is really intended for those who've played the whole game, or as much as they're intending to play, before listening. One of the more overtly cerebral stories in video games, Xenogears has inspired many responses already. Many of them more informative than my own here, more factual, no doubt many are at least as imaginative. Among them are articles, theories, histories, fanfics, novelizations, there are let's plays, music remixes, video analyses, and reading aloud dramatizations. So why this bookworm game series? To my knowledge, though I haven't read all that is out there or even all that much of what there is, there hasn't yet been any poetic retelling that's commensurate with the game's scope. And that, a poetic one, is always what I felt would be the way to represent Xenogears. Not in prose, but in verse. A romantic, elegiac, epic treatment, which, in its loose meter and alliteration and overall mood, would emulate, to some extent, the translation of Beowulf by Seamus Haney, which I encountered around the same time I first played Xenogears, I think, the tail end of the 90s or early 2000s, so that it seems natural to be inspired by them both together to attempt some such fusion as this. Since then, I've read enough of Beowulf in Old English to appreciate how many liberties Haney takes, but it does not diminish my appreciation of his version as a work of poetry in its own right. I hope my attempts here will bear some analogy, my approach to Xenogears as his to Beowulf. Wanting to know the story better in the first place anyhow, I'll also be sharing a reading of the game as I go and intersperse within each episode some passages of the poem. Besides the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, whose Signum University is where I go to study Old English, my models in this project are Dante, his Vita Nuova, the new life, which comprises poems and commentary, woven together in a memoiristic account with philosophical reflections. Similarly, Boethius, his consolation of philosophy. Or why not, the Bible, with illuminated manuscripts, the labors of love added by copyists, and the sermons and glosses and interpretive frameworks assembled over generations of reverent study and devoted syntheses, and then historical critiques later on, and retellings even by atheists like Philip Pullman in his book uh, 
of the good man Jesus and the scoundrel Christ. Could such a culture, living, wave-like and diverse, as Montaigne described human nature, could such a culture arise from a fresh synthesis of games and literature, of East and West, if those names have any meaning anymore? Perhaps. As for the game, its precedents include Chrono Trigger, with its biblical wooly-isms in the English translation, uh, animes with giant mechs, FF6 with its Magitech armor, and there's also an important parallels with Final Fantasy VII, which was under development at the same time as Xenogears. There's also the influence of Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. The Bible, of course, and all manner of theories of psychoanalysis and mythic archetypes. We'll try to touch on some of these sources and connections as they become relevant in each episode as we go along. Now, to go on with this overview just a little longer, the first thing to acknowledge is that in Xenogears, everything, as far as the story, themes, visuals, the music, the gameplay, practically everything is derivative except for how it comes together, how it is combined. I say combined because it's not fully integrated and it's not even altogether successfully combined. You can still see the joints in some cases and maybe even some lacunae, some empty spots. And yet, it is bold and ambitious, like few other games. It aspires to be the total operatic work of art. Gesamtskunst work. Not only that, Xenogears further incorporates and transmits a religious and psychological message, garbled as it may come across. That combination is what is new. I think, and more than the game could actually support. And many of the parts of which it is woven, though taken from other works, are new to me anyhow at the time that I played the game. They perhaps are new to others who came to it as well, or continue to come to it. I hope this will lead to a new audience for the game. Now, Xenogears is much like Tolkien's work in this. Famously, Tolkien was a scholar of Old English and has inspired many of a new generation of scholars to read Old English by way of his fantasy as well as his scholarship. And Tolkien went further by creating his own languages. Um, maybe another comparison we might make is to George Lucas and Star Wars, with its media, uh, its uh, beginning in medias res, that is, as episode four, and its pseudo-religious synthesis of Eastern and Western myth, its revolutionary special effects, and all this is well worth study, well worth serious play. As far as I 
can tell that scholarship in this field, uh, if you can get past the pop culture sort of catch-alls, mono myth and so forth, there's a way which the old distinction Tolkien was familiar with between lang and lit, language versus literature, maps onto a new distinction we get between programming, play, as we could loosely group them together maybe, and narrative, story, themes on the other side. That would be the modern lang versus lit, the play versus story. So I'll be mostly talking about the lit side of things, the story side of things. But I do want to bring in some broad sketch ideas about play as well as story. After all, I don't know enough about the lang side of things, the sense of programming, but in the sense of Japanese too, to really do that much justice. To really do the game justice, though, I would want to know more about those texts and contexts. And failing that, I'll just draw on secondary sources and also be inviting more knowledgeable people on for conversations. Uh, but mostly I'll just restrict myself to the game as it's adapted into English. So that's the first thing to acknowledge, the beautiful mess of Xenogears and of, I suppose, any attempt to study it. And uh, the other first thing to acknowledge, if it wasn't clear by now, is that I approach the game as an amateur in the root sense as well, of one who loves it. So anything but objectively, I approach it with something partaking of both the scholar and the fan, but more the fan. And I think what the game has to say, letting it speak for itself as much as possible, should still be within our power to translate, so to speak, and adapt in this form of analysis in ways which will be interesting to fans and scholars alike, and maybe even to people who otherwise wouldn't be interested in a game from the late 90s. And the reason is that it would show how it bears on things that everyone should be interested in, on the limits of technological and human evolution and the meaning of history and psychology, the nature of love and fate. And particularly, as a young person coming to the game for the first time, it helps to form one sense of these all-important ideas. And even looking back at it from a more experienced vantage point, the game supplies its own timeless evocation of earnest struggle and the youth of the medium to express these oldest truths. To give what I think may be the strongest instance right up front, there's the music of composer Yasunori Mitsuda. In Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross, but still more in Xenogears and in the arranged album of Xenogears music, Creed, C-R-E-I-D, it's a spelling there. The work of Misuda 
has given me some of the most wonderful aesthetic enjoyment of anything I can recall. It's difficult now to give an account for how music can exert such power over us. And indeed, this is one of the first mysteries that Xenogears expressly places before the player. Power of music. But part of it might be in the way that it expresses the sense of some meaning beyond words, something ineffable and yet deeply felt to be true. And the music is programmatic to a point. It represents in its way what the visuals and story are also about in theirs. But it seems to me that music transcends them, just as the ideas inspiring the story and visuals and music do. At least, I take it to be this way, and maybe an expert in music could set me straight. But here's another example. You have a work called Kairite by Mitsuda, an album where you have a soundtrack without a game. I think that there's maybe a story that goes with it, but I haven't read that story. And so Kairite's music nevertheless works on me in much the same way as Xenogears music does. So my theory here is that the music of Xenogears should still work upon an audience without their having played the game. And when we put that together with the playing, or with fond memories of times when we did play, of course the music elevates the experience that much more to a kind of space-time opera whose content flashes before our mind's eye. Again, this is Gesamtkunstwerk, the total work of art, or maybe better, Gesamtkunstspiel for play. Xenogear's chief creative force, even more primary than Yasunori Mitsuda, is the writer and designer team. Tetsuya Takahashi and Soraya Saga, husband and wife, who together developed the concept and much of the script. And to delve into this more, I recommend you consult the Xenogears Xenosaga Study Guide website. Um, the rest of the team, it just explains in the history page there, were apparently young and inexperienced, and so the incomplete final product with its disparate parts not fully cohering into an artistic whole reflects the difference between authorship of a text and the development of a game. The latter is necessarily a team effort, even in cases where the former is done by a team, it's a much more manageable one. And the greater the integrity of the finished game, I think, the more we could expect to find unusual freedom from the constraints of the sort that Takahashi and Saga had to labor under. There are examples of auteur sort of games, like uh, those by the makers of Ico, of Katamari. Uh, these are discussed in a series of books called Boss Fight, which I commend to you. There's also 
Itoi, the genius behind Earthbound. And you can read some about him in Legends of Localization. And there's indie developers, of course, like the creator of Spelunky or the creator of Undertale, who, of course, had partners and teammates, but largely were able to control the creative vision of their work. But none of these, these games I've listed, have quite the grandiose narrative uh, and thematic ambitions of Xenogears, and which, even though it only realizes a small part of the overall story spun out, uh, has led to the development of a whole universe of prequels, sequels, and parallel stories in what is called Xenosaga. In the space of this project, I won't be concerning myself much with Saga and Blade uh, for the simple reason that I haven't ever played them, and perhaps this adds to the quixotic nature of the endeavor, that I know only a fragment of the story, which is itself fragmentary, and I know little of Xenogears' original language or context. So, Again, I'm thrown back on just what the game gives by itself. Its flow of images and the relations between them, certain thematic resonances and levels of meaning that we can find there in our attempts to explicate and revel in some of the complexities of its story. So. In place of Don Quixote's attempt to live out his tales of knighthood, we'll content ourselves with essaying to adapt the tale of Xenogears to poetic compression, to recode it, to be inspired by and in accord with the story, images, and music of the game. A few of the songs already carry lyrics either in the original soundtrack or the Creed album, and we'll look at those lyrics to an extent, but the poems here will be more in the manner of a continuous narrative rather than lyrics. So, to start again with the name in the title screen. Zeno, the Greek for strange, foreign, alien, the Xenia was the law of hospitality, illustrated as often as not by its being broken in the Greek myths and epics. You get the consequences for which were heavy. There's the story of Lycaon, the lycanthrope. There's also the boon to be garnered by observing the rules of hospitality. These were correspondingly great. In the tale of Balkis and Philemon, I hope I'm getting that right, the old couple who showed hospitality and were immortalized as an intertwining pair of trees. Now, in some ways, the Odyssey of Homer is a long and ornate exploration of the concept of the Xenia, the variations on the theme, just as 
in some ways. All adventure stories are just variations on the Odyssey. Xenogear's original name was actually Project Noah. So there's that other connection to Judaic myth and uh, religion built in to the earliest uh, version of the game. Um, but in terms of what we actually have here, the game's cinematic intro shows the invasion or infection of the Ark, the ship, by an alien form, virus-like. So, our knowledge of the word Xeno, if we have any coming into the game, would be external to it. It's not actually explained within it. But we do learn in the game that about that second part of the name, uh, and we learn it in the second part of the intro that's signaled by prologue text and by actual gameplay graphics, we learn that Gears, the name for those anthropomorphic combat mechs of the sort you might know from Gundam or any number of other uh, anime, there's sort of a host for a human pilot. And so, in this way, Gears are an image for the game, uh, and we ourselves would play the role of the pilot within it, wielding a degree of freedom, uh, although encapsulated within the faded structure of the game, its machinery. You might get from Gears an image of clockwork, of mechanical power, and uh, that wouldn't be far off, although it is belied a bit by the high-tech designs, a form of a black box. We don't see the engineering that goes into these things. We do see some gears in the everyday ordinary sense of interlocking wheels up at Satan's house on top of the mountain. We'll get there next time, particularly in the music box. We can infer their presence in the windmill it's hazy in the firelight, and that windmill also looks a bit like a cross. Blood red letter X in the title screen font, so prominently displayed. And there will be crucifixions. And in this project, I'm sure we'll also tilt at more than one windmill. But Xenogears will also be the name of the final mech, the final gear in a bit of Deus Ex Machina, which we'll get to eventually. <laughs> that letter X is the Greek letter Chi. It could be a pun on Chi, which is the life energy that Fae can use in combat, and is an ancient Chinese concept of physical and mental energy far as I know. And so the letter X echoes not only the cross and the name Christ, but in its chiasmus nature, the story too. 
will reflect it. And also the structure of chromosomes in the DNA. We see it sort of recombining on the screen in the intro, and it will play an important role in the story. And so the X could be that too. It could be simply the unknown, the variable, or the place where the treasure is. Could going a little further afield remind us of the X-Men, the extraterrestrials, the X-Games, all that good 90s paraphernalia. But the intro proper begins with different letters. Not key, but alpha and omega. I am alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then the music comes in. Oh, it's so powerful. It is well worth rewatching or checking it out if you've never seen it. Um, but we'll come back to those words from you know, inspired by Revelation. Here's my poem's intro, the proem. The red script marched over every display at once, implacably engraved. In spite of the siren and the panic, all he knew was silence. He felt his heart clanging shut against his blood, thrusting away the impetuous life stream, the stuff of the quick he swore with his heart, loyal and solemn, had no place here. Mechanically, then, with iron resignation, he gave his orders in accordance with protocol. The crew was steadfast. He saw how they acquitted themselves, fighting desperation. They clung to every chance ripped from their hands. The engine room did not respond, but with eerie static. A severed cord swung in the vast dark room, cutting the conduits manually, stopped for a moment only the cruel possessor of the ship from turning its heavy turrets to the grisly task he was set upon, slaying fugitives of the tragedy. With uncanny voltage, the circuit was remade. Blue energy jumped that obstacle, while elsewhere bundles of cables, writhing like veins, burst from the hull to fix new connections. At last, the officers took their leave to die bravely, defending the lifeboats. All the screens were black in the bridge. Idly, the captain rested his chin on his chest, meditating the intent as much as the meaning of that cryptic message. Then his dais hummed as he turned on the consoles, that by their faint light he might see a picture of the wife and daughter he loved, he set the locket down. Perhaps above debris eddied in the space between stars, pieces cold and shorn, but on this beach the wreckage burned merrily. Waters meekly washed metals worked by ruined men once, plates that had not seen the last of strife but might rest a while yet, for the survivor of that final earthward rush 
dazed by the impact, to stand and breathe and gaze over the sea's broad horizon was a marvel to be wondered at. Already the flight was like a nightmare made it to her soul half forgotten. Unseen birds stirred in the trees at her back. Her bare skin shivered in the salt air full of their chirruping. The wind drew her long black hair out playfully and whispered from its violet shade. So night fell that night. The sky woke, wept its broken tears for months. Many years passed. Certain long, memorable days overlapped short lives. The stars wheeled out of reach, save as stepping stones of several souls. They are the glimmering lamps of the study of God, whose brow is furrowed and whose hands measure the ages of the world. They say, eternity is but a moment to him. I jumped there to the other quote from Genesis, but just to pick up with the Alpha and Omega. The message of this cobbled together quotation from a couple of verses of Revelation seems at least partly to be saying this is going to be apocalyptic in the sense of revelatory and in the more usual sense of cataclysmic. It shows us something hidden in the distant past. It uncovers or reveals it, though it doesn't explain what we see. And it bookends the God's eye view we have of the action at the start and the perspective reflected in the eye of the woman at the end. And so this cutscene and others like it in the form of cinematic anime, and they form the spine of the game, fleshed out with role-playing elements and a wildly verbose population of characters, playable and non, who provide much of the storytelling and comment on the action. The self-referential prophetic language here refers both back in time to something which has already happened, that is, the destruction of the ship, and ahead, for it's that which your characters will encounter toward the end of the game. It refers outside of the game, quite clearly, to a biblical original, and true to the myth, the beginning and end are also continually recapitulated at the level of the present, as we see replaying down the generations. They're embodied in the course of individual lifetimes and in the rise and fall of nations, these same characters, these souls who we see in the opening cutscene. Blake's language, it's eternity in a moment, or eternity in love with the productions of time. And just as it is a very different thing to read the book of Revelation in isolation from the rest of the Bible, or indeed the Bible in isolation from any interpretive context, 
or vitiated from a community of fellowship or a living faith, even taking on board all the conflicts that churches wrestle with and all the paradoxes faith seems to abide in. The prologue makes little sense until pieced together by the later unfolding of the story. We can tell right away, though, how steeped in religious language and iconography the game is, I hope. Its visual reference in the ship's scale against the black vacuum of space refers back to 2001 Space Odyssey, and its crew members brandishing lightsabers uh, make us think immediately of Star Wars, though maybe the way they're pointlessly bobbing out there in their spacesuits and the way they seem to be signaling with these lightsaber-like things might be a little different. Now, curiously, we don't see any actual gears yet. It seems the ship's laser cannons are its only weapon, aside from its self-destruct capability. We could call that a weapon. And indeed, the cannons, too, are turned against the ship itself and firing on the escape pods. That seems to be the work of this invader, this infection. This enormous bundles of cables, bacteria, or like rods of a virus that physically run amok. The ship's confusion and anguish of the crew and the exhilaration that we feel watching all this happen, all of this is our own. And in the bridge, the captain's ability to see what's happening is then taken away along with his control of the ship. The screens all cover themselves with more biblical language. An ironic kind of revelation, then, one that also covers over. And this one comes from Genesis. You shall be as gods from the serpent's temptation. The red letters, though, are normally reserved for the words of Christ. And they may be a pun on the invader's name, which we learn later is Deus, like Zeus, or God in Latin. Hence, ye shall be as gods, might be read, you'll be like Deus. But, again, I think the biblical original is more relevant here. This is the serpent's temptation to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do read one book of the Bible, Genesis might be a good one, at least the first few chapters, where we get the creation story and the Garden of Eden. And that the woman's nakedness at the end of the intro, as well as the story we get later about her, certainly alludes to. And soon enough we'll come back to Cain and Abel and the Tower of Babel, which all appear early in Genesis. Again, though, in the mood of courage in the face of terrible darkness, certain doom, both the captain's courage and the woman's, too, the intro also recalls Tolkien's great argument in his essay, Beowulf and the Critics, the monsters and the critics, sorry, where the monstrous in art reflects 
both the tragedy of civilization coming apart and simultaneously the possibility of hope in heroic renewal. At least the captain's decision to self-destruct seems to have spared one survivor, whatever the fate of those in the picture in his locket might prove to be.